0: Welcome to the SQV Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Lawrence. This will be episode 17 of the show, and my guest today is Sir Charles Cologne. Charles is a prolific author, speaker, Catholic historian, a true polymath, and I would include without hesitation a brilliant entertainer whose latest book is Blessed Charles of Austria, A Holy Emperor and His Legacy. So, Charles, thank you for once again appearing on the SQV Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Always glad to be here.
0: So, Charles, here's what I'd like to attempt. I have to imagine that there are a great many people who have nothing more than a gossamer concept of what monarchy is. For example, and this may come as no surprise to anyone who's a regular listener, I myself have no real formal education past the ninth grade. So anything that I may know is therefore the result of autodidactic undertaking. And by the very nature of that fact, some things will have simply slipped through the cracks. So, if you don't mind, Can we begin by kind of painting with broad strokes for people like myself who have a very limited conceptualization of it outside of King Arthur cartoons and the current Queen of England, what monarchy properly understood and fully effectuating its authority looks like?
1: Oof. All right. Well, let's see. We only have 17 hours, so I think I can do (laughs) a good job. No, uh, well... First and foremost, uh, there are monarchies and there are monarchies the way there are republics and there are republics uh, and democracies and democracies. You know, back in the uh, Cold War days when I was young, we used to say that the United States and Western Europe had representative democracy. The uh, Soviet Union and her satellites had people's democracy, and uh, Idi Amin called cannibalism Nutritional democracy. Uh, so just as if you to ask me without understanding well, what's democracy, you know, we do have to define our terms. So I'm not including EDMN, for instance, as, as a consultant here. Uh, that having been said, uh, I'm dealing primarily with Christian monarchy. Mm. Having said that, though, before I say goodbye to them, while there are a number of uh, monarchies historically that I would not have wanted to have lived under, like the Ottoman Sultanate or the Qing Dynasty in China, uh, nevertheless, inevitably, what has replaced such setups has been worse. So, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of the Sultans, but of Ataturk, no thank you. Uh, the Empress Dowager I could have done without in China – uh but I'd take her over Mao. So that's that's something that, that we we have to understand. So then by Christian monarchy, what are we speaking of? Well, we're gonna have to give you a little bit of an historical analysis first before I can explain what it turned into. Um, all Christian monarchies to some degree attempt so they all claim to be kings by the grace of God, they all attempt to represent, in some sense, the kingship of Christ. Now, yes, I know I'm talking theoretically, and that it's a high ideal that often has not been lived up to, but the same is true of every other, so every other form of government. Uh, we, if you live in the United States or Western Europe, or Europe as a whole now, uh, you live in a setup where, ideally, the people are sovereign. But right now they're wearing masks and confined to their houses. So, you know, please. Um, and the, the other thing I should quickly disabuse you of, the notion of absolute monarchy. As we'll see in a moment, absolute monarchy was a bit of a corruption of what it had gone before. But even at its worst, and I'll take this as its, its very worst, someone like Henry VIII, uh, he did not have the power that our governments do today. He couldn't re- redefine marriage. He couldn't redefine what a human being is. He, he, he didn't have that kind of power. Uh, I don't know if he could have had his subjects all confined to their homes and wearing masks. We certainly had plagues then, but uh, I don't know what the government did about it. Anyway, moving along. In the early days of Catholic monarchy, that is to say, shortly after we became legal in the 300s, uh, Catholic monarchs saw themselves as partaking in the kingship of Christ, as being his regents, as you might say. Um, and the kingship of Christ itself was an interesting thing, uh, because after all, Christ was the heir to the throne of David, the Davidic kingship found its consummation and its uh, fulfillment in Christ's kingship. He was the rightful heir by blood of David and all the kings of of, uh, Judah and Israel, which he united with the headship of the church and the start of the sacramental system at the Last Supper. Now, this may sound like I'm just getting theological, but actually there is a point to be made about the Last Supper, so keep it in mind. In, as I say, in uh, 311, 312, Constantine legalized the church. Uh, but there were already Christian kingdoms. Ethiopia, Armenia, Georgia had all converted, and their kings had converted. So the nation and the church were different facets of the same animal, if you will. But then uh, Theodosius the Great in the Edict of Thessalonica in 372, declared that Catholicism was now the state religion of the Roman Empire. More than that, baptism from that point on not only made you a member of the church, it made you a citizen of Rome. Hmm. So, properly understood, in that sense, uh, church and state were facets of the same animal. They were distinct. They weren't. It wasn't a theocracy by any means, but they were very strongly connected, and Catholicism became the animating principle, if you will, the animating philosophy of society in those places that were like that. And the emperor, and then later the other Christian kings, uh, again came to see themselves as participating to a degree in Christ's kingship, and their major function to be assisting the church, in her role of uh, getting her children to heaven, now obviously, the way they did that was a bit different from the way the church did it. They weren't dispensing the sacraments, but it was up to them to make sure to the best of their ability that their subjects were neither being attacked or starving, under which circumstances you tend not to think of your soul very much <laughs> and it was also uh, part of the part of their job to assist the church. In her, in her mission, the way any layman does, financially, that sort of thing. And to suppress heresy and things like that. Bearing in mind that uh, heresy very quickly became bound up with treason. Uh, and there, and here I have to make another point, because people often get upset. Every society punishes views and opinions it does not approve of. Mm-hmm. There is no society that has ever existed where speech has been entirely free. It's just a question of which speech is outlawed. So, for instance, when I was a kid, it was very much looked down on to use foul language in public. But people did use racial epithets now and then. Although, if you did, you were considered kind of low class, you know. A gentleman Mm -hmm. wouldn't speak that way, that kind of thing. Today, racial epithets are far more forbidden than foul language was. And foul language has become the rule. Everybody uses it. So these things can change. Here in Europe, where I am, in most of Europe, it's a crime to deny the historicity of the the, uh, Holocaust. Now, mind you, I believe the Holocaust happened. I had relatives who died in it. So that's not my point. My point is that they punish an opinion. It is a heresy. And in our country, in the United States... There are similar heresies that you will be punished for, either officially or otherwise. Every society is like that. It's like with censorship, you know, are you for censorship? And my, my inevitable answer is it depends on who's doing the censoring and what's being censored.
0: <laughs> right, that's, that's, that's a very good point. I, I just was having a discussion with someone about that, that that censorship in and of itself is not an intrinsic evil. Uh, if We're censoring things based on a proper understanding of um catholic morality well i'm all for that and as you also say free speech has never been an absolute it's more about who is free to speak and who isn't or what what language is free to be used and what isn't um, exactly
1: and that's you know that that's kind of an important thing but to, but to to rush into the meat of the topic uh, which generally people want to know what monarchs would do what right. the whole thing would look like well i'm taking uh you might say, the high point of Christian monarchy, though there have been subsequent smaller high points, is actually the Middle Ages, roughly the 1200s, uh, the 1100, well, 1100s, say, to the 1500s, um, in terms of principles. The first thing that you've got to bear in mind are two concepts that are very important and very much uh, mistaken and forgotten today. And they are power and authority. Do you know the difference?
0: I don't know if I fully do, actually.
1: All right. Well, authority is the right to say what ought to happen. Power is the ability to make it so.
0: Mm, So That makes sense. It
1: makes perfect sense. So your doctor, for instance, he has the authority to give you a prescription. Only you have the power to actually carry it out. Now, Under the medieval setup, authority was concentrated. It was concentrated, well, it was seen to come from God, and it came via the church and the coronation ceremony to the monarch. Uh, He had the authority. Power, however, power was very diffuse. So the king did have some. So did the church. So did the lords. So did the cities. So did the guilds. So did even the peasants. Uh everybody had something. And a good king was like an orchestra leader. A bad king, well, he wasn't a tyrant or a despot, although he could make life unpleasant for the people immediately around him. No, no, no. When you had a bad king, you didn't get tyranny. You got anarchy and civil war. That was the great Achilles heel. Mm. Now, which shouldn't bother our libertarian friends, just so you'll know, so, <laughs> no, the, very well, little does. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but uh, no, the, the the thing is that in today's setup, it's the reverse. Authority is extremely diffuse uh, in the sovereign people as expressed through their votes. But power is very concentrated, mm-hmm. as Mr. Trump found out when he lost his Twitter account. So Indeed. Against, uh, and in that sort of a setup, as I say, the uh, the power structure today can redefine uh li- human life, and it has. It can redefine marriage. It can do all kinds of things. You can do whatever it wants. And the rest of us have to grin and bear it from under our masks. Mm-hmm. I like to say that when they had us put on our masks, they took off theirs. But <laughs> at any <laughs> yeah. rate... In this wonderful post-democratic age in which we live, uh, power is extremely concentrated. Now, I mean, this is why people and, and again, I want to get into great conspiracy theories and all that, but the fact that people can talk about the Great Reset without any reference to what if do people don't want that tells you a lot.
0: It certainly does. It, it, it seems to me that a system of governance without a true hierarchical structure, right? The, the, the aphoristic checks and balances. No, it's actually, it, it's a distortion or a full scale degradation of the way in which both the church and heaven itself are structured, right? So the idea of the, the altar and throne, and therefore it's almost predisposed to perversion and failure. And it's much more inclined to um these overreaches of, of power than, than any monarch probably could have ever reached. Right?
1: Well, see, that's because authority effectively ceases to exist. And mm. what you're left with is power. They have the the power to make us do whatever they have the power to make us do. And all we can do is smile and say, yeah, boss. Uh, now, mind you, having said that, I can tell you that traditional monarchy of the sort that I've described and those people who fought for it, either politically or militarily in different places. Uh France, Portugal, Spain, Central Europe at different times. And of course the British Isles. Um, the kind of monarchy they were fighting for had five points. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing to me anyway, because France, Spain, Italy, Britain are all very different countries. And uh, the histories were different, the groups were different, all all different. But there are these five similarities that keep popping out if you analyze each of these groups carefully and realize that they were going back to some approximation, updated, of the uh, the medieval state. So what are they? Well, the first is the altar, and that is the uh, the place of the church and society as the guarantor of uh, legitimacy as the funnel of authority from God, uh, as the, well, the power that sets the rules, ultimately. And mind you, just as every society has a ruling class, a ruling set, regardless of whether or not they admit it, every society has a state church of some kind, an animating principle or philosophy. With the Soviet Union, it was communism. You know, there is no God, and Lenin is his prophet head, that it functioned as a religion does. And of course, in the United States today, and in the West, we have this vague, woke thing that people are supposed to believe. But it functions like a religion for its adherents. Anyway, I digress. So we've got the altar. The second is the throne. Now, that, of course, is the monarch. But what does that mean? Well, he's got his God-given authority, again, via the coronation. Uh... He is an executive monarch, not the absolute monarch of imagination, and certainly not the absolute democracy that we have. He is limited by all sorts of things, and we'll see a little bit more of them in a moment. But nevertheless, in a lot of ways, his power is that of the President of the United States. In other words, he is, as I say, an orchestra leader, and particularly as regards foreign policy and the military. That brings us to the third tier. And that, another age called local liberties, provincial rights. The Spanish carlos called it the fueros. Today we would call it subsidiarity. But it is the idea that the most governing possible should be done at the lowest level. So in other words... The king and his government only do what the provinces are incapable of doing. The provincial governments only do what the counties simply can't. The counties only do what really doesn't work for municipalities, all the way down to the parish. So that's the third plank. The fourth uh, is to some degree foreshadowed by the old feudalism. But due to the rise of an industrial proletariat and so on, Catholic thinkers and theorists had to try to apply the same spirit to a very different world. And as you know, starting in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution brought us class conflict between labor and uh, management, labor and capital. Well, the idea here was to get them back on the same basic program. Uh, Not class conflict, but class collaboration. And a whole series of ideologies, for want of a better word, uh, grew up proposing various facets of this. Uh, Distributism, guild socialism, corporatism, solidarism. Oh, man, the list goes on and on. And usually the names come from a particular area that they focused on. Distributism was talking about the wide distribution of land and the means of production. Corporatism was talking about reorganizing uh, every industry on the basis of labor and capital uh, collaboration, and then their representation and voice in government as a whole. Uh, Solidarism had to do with the uh, papal encyclicals, especially uh, Quadrages Moano, Guild socialism had to do with reviving the guilds, but they're all talking, if you examine them, about different aspects of the same basic idea, which we moderns would call solidarity. The last point, and the easiest to misunderstand, is the idea of Christendom as a supranational body uh, made up of all the Christian states run in the fashion I've described. Traditionally, this was associated with the idea of the Holy Empire, the Reichsiede in uh, in German. But, of course, the problem with the word empire is that depending on your background, it means different things to different people. The British think of a colonial empire. The French think of Napoleon's thing. Uh, what we're talking about here is something, again, more like the uh, the Empire of Charlemagne or uh, out of the Great, which, apart from its own territories, had a vague uh, a vague propriety over the rest of christendom um, so some of the ideas for the earlier European unity movements and so on drew very much on that notion, of course, what the European Union has become is. <laughs> <laughs> very it's different, totally different uh, right. yeah. totally a different animal yeah I mean you know when, when you mention people like Kudnov-Kalergi or Schumann or Adenauer or Digasperi uh, who were big in the early formation of the European Union people immediately look the EU as it's become and presume oh well they were one worlders blah 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 but that's a bit like looking at the founding fathers of the United States and saying that they were for the all-encompassing state that we live in now.
0: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the Founding Fathers. So Let me ask you something about that. Being that where we are now, all these liberties that um, America um, espouses to enshrine, um, so local government, states' rights, freedom of speech, no national religion, appear to all be illusions. Do you think that the establishment of Republics was a mistake, or maybe to to condense that a little bit to make it more specific. was the American Revolution a mistake, and is the American Revolution a part of the same spirit as was the French Revolution?
1: Well, the answer is a little complex because I get to say one of my favorite phrases yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It makes you feel like I've been elected to high office, or well, as, um,
0: uh, as Father Hess would say, uh, very Jesuitical, right?
1: Yes, the indeed. Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. But I, I do have a, a, a very specific meaning for that, and what I mean is this: the revolution, in and of itself, was everything you say. Um, it's it was unwarranted, unjustified. Uh, It was the work of a very able, very intelligent oligarchy who, uh, you know, they they were the best generation of statesmen that the United States have ever produced. But in achieving their goal, they sort of ensured that we would never produce one as able again. (laughs) But that's all on the one side. On the other, it has to be seen that God brings good out of evil. The United States were established as a country, and for a good 200 years, thanks to that Constitution, despite its uh, flaws, the Catholics of America had the chance to evangelize their country had they decided to do so. They did not. They were more interested, or the leadership were more interested, in being accepted and maybe in one day getting one of our own in the White House. (laughs) <laughs> well, the day I was born, that dream came true. John F. Kennedy was elected. Now, the great compromise that the church in America made, more or less consciously, more or less unconsciously, that we would not really try to rock the boat or heavily evangelize in return for a place at the table. Well, we got our, we got our part. We got paid off, finally, and now most recently we've been paid off again with our second great
0: Catholic president. Right, paying dividends.
1: Um, yep. Well, you know well, when you make it when you make a deal with the devil, usually his payment isn't really good.
0: Right. Yeah. Or it's not what it appears to be, or what he's.
1: No. He's laid no. out in
0: front of you in the first. He's played the old switcheroo. So he showed you his right hand, and then he pays you with the the garbage in the left.
1: Exactly. Just think, we'll have a Jesuit giving the invocation at the inauguration in 2021. (laughs) Wow, that's exciting. A a real Jesuit? Yes. Father Leo Donovan. Charles,
0: the fact that not very long after, this might be a non-sequitur, but it popped into my head, the fact that not all that long after the country's inception, it erupted into a civil war an indictment of its founding in the first place, or is this just one of the kind of tropes of history, that these things happen?
1: Well, no. I mean, I I think the fact is that a country that is based upon secession really is not in a moral position to refuse it to others. Mm -hmm. When in the course of human events? Well, I mean, there's a reason why the Great Seal of the Confederacy featured Washington on a horse. They believed very strongly, very sincerely, that they were repeating what their fathers or well, grandfathers anyway had done eighty years before. And in fact, uh, it's it's one of the little known but kind of interesting factoids of history is that uh, of the thirteen colonies uh, in 1776. Uh, the, the people were loyalists or rebels for different reasons. Some of them ideological, others have to do with local problems. Uh, and one thing you noticed was that areas that were kind of neglected economically or felt, shall we say, put upon or exploited by the oligarchy that ran the colony and would eventually separate from Britain, tended to be loyalist when the break came. And these were usually out-of-the-way places, the back country, uh, the Pine Barrens in, Louisiana, Louisiana, in New Jersey, uh, places like that. They, they tended to the eastern shore in Maryland. Uh, the, the places that were sort of neglected and left out, they tended to be Loyalist. Now, what was interesting about that was that when the war between the states broke out in 1860, if looking at the 13 original states that had been the 13 colonies, in the north, those areas that had been loyalist tended to be copperhead. That is, those those areas uh, in the north that had been loyalist in the revolution tended to be copperhead during the, uh, during the Civil War. But the areas in the south that had been loyalist tended to be unionist. In the Civil War. That is, they were against secession. So much so in the case of the backwoods of Virginia, that West Virginia became a separate state.
0: That's, that's, that's an interesting dynamic.
1: It is, but it makes perfect sense. In the, in the first case, the revolution, you had the people who already ran the show and were collecting most of the taxes and, you know, abusing these people as only governors can. Uh, they told them we've got a glorious cause. Fight for freedom. Uh, I don't think I want to do that. The king is the only access I've got to anything beyond you. You think I'm going to rebel against him and be stuck with you as the supreme power? I don't think so. Well, fast forward. In the north, join our glorious cause. Fight for freedom in the union. No, I don't <laughs> think I want to do that. But then in the south... Join our glorious cause. Fight for states' rights and sovereignty. No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> you see, it, it, was, it was the same reaction to the same kind of people.
0: From kind of parallel to, uh, parallel to communism or to any perverted system of government there, right? Because the, the people don't mind the power structure that's in place as long as they're one of the ones that has power.
1: Yeah. And, you know, at any given moment, though, and this is one of the great secrets of history, the vast majority of people would rather just be left alone. You know, don't beat me. Don't starve me. Let me raise my kids in peace, okay? No, well, let me live. That's all most people want. Uh, history is made not by majorities, but by determined minorities, for good or ill.
0: Very true. Um... And along those lines, you know, without monarchy, in a system instead where the people are allowed to or, or supposedly allowed to elect their leaders, are we circumventing a sort of Western version of the mandate of heaven and robbing ourselves of an opportunity to be led by men of truly heroic virtue? In other words, no one, um, ever attains sainthood by popular vote,
1: right? Yep. No. No, it's true, and in fact, I had a, a young fellow say to me some years ago, and it shows you, you know, when you're old, you don't realize where your own ideas will take you until sometimes a younger person comes along and applies them in a way that you would never have thought of. Mm-hmm. So this young fellow said to me, you know, Mr. Coulomb, really, if you think about it, voting is a denial of divine providence, voting for the head of state, as opposed to an hereditary ruler. Because, of course, when they're hereditary, well, you do get what God's going to give you, no doubt about it. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it could use an improvement. Uh, but whatever it is, it comes to the hand of God. Um, and that you may have to take up arms against it if it's bad enough. But that doesn't change the fact that the method of getting it leaves leaves the choice uh beyond us. Now having said all of that, there are certain practical elements that we're seeing uh the need for monarchy and that are falling apart in our very in front of our very eyes. You see, we consider the party conflict to be politics, to be the the goal of politics getting elected. That's what we think it to be. The problem is that governance encompasses a lot of things that are not of their nature best done in a political manner. So, for instance, if you look at anything from education, historical preservation, cultural stuff, environmental conservation, all that kind of thing, this is really or should be apolitical. It shouldn't be an issue of party, but an issue of quality quality of life well that element of governance uh, to say nothing of course of foreign affairs and the military which also should be apolitical um, all of those things have gotten increasingly politicized to the point of, of paralyzing them you know this last summer when you had the the riots That uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Miss Ocasio-Cortez was very, very much excited about the few hours that the Capitol was occupied. And don't get me wrong, I I wasn't in favor of that by any stretch. But it's nothing compared to what happened all across the country in the summer. Nothing. And if it had been done by the people who did what was done during the summer, the Capitol would have been a smoking ruin on Inauguration Day.
0: Absolutely true.
1: I mean, you look at what they did. With, all right, five people were killed, which is not nice. But 16 cops and a lot of other people were killed over the summer. And again, that doesn't seem to be a problem for anyone. Well, fine. This is what happens when everything is politicized. So the, power in part, the party in power, some of their congresspeople were, were upset and frightened. So this... This is incredible. This is the end of the world. Uh, Scores of people were killed. uh, Hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses destroyed. Tens of thousands of people affected economically. Well, it doesn't matter because either they were on the other side or they're poor people anyway, so who cares? That, you see, ultimately is what a republic will bring you to. And remember that we have actually, down through our history, expected the president to be two different things at once we've expected him to be the head of state for all the people the representative of all americans and the leader of his party at the same time which means that practically speaking even at the best of times when the parties were very very similar and their only major differences was who got to (laughs) who got to share the public pelf uh, even the, even then. Well, I mean, you know, okay, it's a bit cheesy and dishonest, but it's better than they're being, than they're living in totally different mental universes. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And, but even then, when, the, when, as I say, there was just a question of who was going to get the gravy from the train, uh, <laughs> the President of the United States spent half his time learning his job, and half his time uh, trying to get a, get reelected. Well, I'm sorry, but that is not a foundation for any kind of long-term policy in anything. I think
0: it's, it's an impossibility. I mean, the dichotomy it sets up, as you say, you, you're, you're, you're fundamentally opposed to 50% of the country. I mean, if no. your party elected you and you hold to their tenants, by nature of that fact, you cannot represent – the tenets of the other party. I mean, they're so diametrically at odds. And something else that you say is very, very interesting. It's It almost seems that politics not only lends itself to moral fluidity, but now requires it because all that is true and good in the political mind is what is beneficial to your party. It, no. there, there, there are no transcendent truths. There is no transcendent morality. So like you say, riots enacted on the behalf of, of the party in vogue is, is okay. But God forbid the other side does something which amounts to a fraction of the damage. They're going to catch all manner of hell and high water for it.
1: Yeah. Uh, And that, uh, to be honest with you, I mean, the roots of it have always been there. The problem is that there were other factors that shall we say for most of our history, Prevented this from getting getting too lethal, and there were two two things really. One uh, one, one relatively simple, the other relatively complex. Uh, the one was a moral consensus, which held true up until the 60s, the 1960s. Um, the vast majority of Catholics, Protestants, and Jews believed the same things were right and wrong. We just did. And uh, there was, as part of that, there was a sort of generic, quote-unquote, Christianity, which, as the Supreme Court said in 1892, I think, uh, Trinity versus uh, the United States. The United States were a Christian country in that vague mode of expression. Mm-hmm. Well, that having been said, the second thing, that helped maintain the country, was the the civil religion of the country. It was uh, actually invented over the first 40 years of independence by people like Daniel Webster. Uh, and that basically turned our history to a kind of salvation history, with the, uh, the pilgrims and Puritans being like the, uh, the Old Testament, the revolutionary and post-revolutionary settlement being like the New the Holy Ghost brought the Constitution in its speak, and so on. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of people approached the Constitution as Holy Writ.
0: Still do. They,
1: yeah, they do. And the thing is that that kind of religion with the president as high priest and so on, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. that was cooked up really to replace the the position of the king before the revolution. Because remember, before the revolution, uh, there were a lot of different Protestant sects. The South, they had the Anglican, the Episcopal Church was the state religion. In New England, it was the Congregational Church. The central colonies, the middle colonies, didn't, except for New York, didn't have one. But, and then they were all divided religiously amongst Protestants, forget Catholics. But they all have the figure of the king as a symbol of unity. When that was gone, it had to be replaced. And what it was replaced by was this religion of the country. Alright. Fast forward. This religion of the country and that moral, uh, uh, consensus allowed the different elements of the country, especially after the Civil War, to coexist and to work more or less for the common good. But in the 60s, that moral consensus shattered. And without that consensus, the religion of the country swiftly went downhill as well. Uh, Our last great outburst of it was in the immediate uh, aftermath of 9-11. Do you remember that? I certainly
0: do. It didn't last very long. Um, No, it
1: didn't. Well, was it wasn't based on anything.
0: No, nothing real.
1: No. I mean, you had those very nice people singing uh, uh, God Bless the USA, which was nice, I guess. Um, you know, and everybody had flags. I put up the flag. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but it didn't mean anything. And I'll tell you something else. At that time, When President Bush Jr. came up with the name Homeland Security, I felt a cat run across my grave.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: We had never said Homeland Security. We never said the homeland. You know, my my brother and I are both kind of given to making funny jokes. At least we think they're funny. So we (laughs) came up with a a series of advertisements for Homeland Security. (laughs) (laughs) And... The uh, the one the one uh, that's, that comes to mind was uh, you see this uh, old Arabic grandmother talking on the phone half in English half in Arabic and the subtitles you can tell she's talking about some friend about a uh, a uh, uh, recipe of some kind but you see her little granddaughter sitting there and, she, and you see the granddaughter's thought bubble. I wonder what they're really talking about. And in the next scene you see her cute as a button on the phone. Homeland Security <laughs> And in the last scene you see the grandmother being taken away by the officers and the <laughs> the, the, the granddaughters being the smiling granddaughter is being patted on the head, you know. <laughs> you did right, yeah. dear. Homeland Security. Be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good.
1: Uh, well, gallows humor, my friend, gallows humor.
0: <laughs> right. We we need a lot of that now. No. What what, what I was gonna say was, um, and I thought maybe you were going there too. That that Bush just kind of saw another means, another vehicle for grabbing power that would normally be outside of his reach. Um, now everybody, now that it's too late, seems to be familiar with the the phrase never let a good crisis go to waste. But I think the political elite were very familiar with this for a long time because, you know, as we've said, their main objective seems to be the power grab, to be in power and hold on to it for as long as possible because they know what the converse of that looks like. They don't want to be one of the, one of the plebes. They don't want to be on, on the receptive end of whoever has the power. They want to wield that baton in their own hands.
1: No, and, and it doesn't have, I think where a lot of our conspiracy theorist friends go astray a bit, is that they, they impute to these people an intelligence that isn't there. They're, I don't mean to say they aren't nasty and evil, and I don't mean to say that they're not in a certain sense insane. They are. Am I insane, I mean they're more in love. Their their ideology is more real to them than even what they should do to stay in power themselves, if you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's the sort of thing that they'd rather have women in combat than win battles. Right, <laughs> right. That's, that's, I, I, I mean, that's, that is the political definition of insanity, is when your ideology is more important even than your own well-being.
0: They don't see past the kind of um, PC-colored glasses, as you were, to the consequences of their own policies. They they, they only see that that this supports their ideology, and and whatever follows, be damned.
1: Well, they they can't, you see. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that the the great decay of education in America and the countries of the West, it it involved our elites as well as, as us. I mean... They got it as they got more ignorant as we got more ignorant. You know? Uh I I mean I I explained it to younger people this way. Back when Roe v. Wade came in, I was twelve years old, I guess, and it dawned on me. I mean, I couldn't believe the Supreme Court had legalized abortion. Because you gotta remember in those days the vast majority of people thought abortion was evil. When you saw abortionists on television in shows and whatnot, they were always filthy, disgusting creatures. Mm-hmm. I could not believe that the Supreme Court had made abortion the law of the land. I, 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 it was beyond me. And I talked to my dad and I said, So what's the story? I said, Well, it was very simple, really. We we're ruled by evil men. And I looked at it. And my dad, my dad was a tail gunner in World War II. He got the air medal 12 times, one time, sorry, but he got 12 successful missions as a tail gunner, which, Mm. trust me, was not that common. Mm. Tail gunners had a very short lifespan in uh, combat, but not my dad. Um, But he looked at me, very matter of fact and said, we're ruled by evil men. I said, well, this is horrible. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Well, what are we going to do? He smiled and said, do? We're not doing anything. There's nothing to be done. They own us. Mm. He said, "We could just hope that uh, you and your brother can lead decent lives under them. A lot of people have lived under evil men and managed. Maybe you will. Let's hope." Well, some years later, when Carter was president, I came to the realization. And again, bear in mind that our rulership wasn't static. You know, it it, it grows and evolves the way the rest of us do. One generation replaces another. Uh, some people drift out, others are recruited. It's the way it works. with anything. Uh, but by the time Carter came in, I realized yeah, they were evil, but they were also insane in the particular sense I mentioned. They were mad, evil and mad, which is not a nice combination. It's not pleasant. But I said, all right, well, what can you do? Then, under Mr. Obama, that was when I came to the third realization. Now, they're evil, and they're insane, but they're also stupid. (laughs) And that, everything that has happened since then has really, they're so stupid that they can't conceal themselves anymore. That's really dumb. Because, you know, the system we had worked very well in pretending that we didn't have a ruling class and we didn't have a state church. It worked very, very well in concealing two of the basic foundations of any human society. And it worked on that basis. But I'm afraid, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. When uh, they had us put on our masks, they took off theirs. hmm and now we see where it is. now we see that we are owned, and we'll do as we're told.
0: I think that this whole mask thing has certainly made clear that it, if if I could use one descriptive for the American right such as it is is that it's it's apathy in action. I mean there's a lot of shouting and ballyhoo on on social media about what's taking place but but very little of anything being done about it i mean let let's let's be frank. As far as I'm concerned, it, it couldn't be clearer that this election was stolen, and yet everyone kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, "Well, I guess that's it." And they appeal to the very institution that you mentioned, made infanticide legal to save them, and and they keep hoping that somehow someone will get appointed who will be the the miraculous arbiter of justice in the Supreme Court, and if only we can get those appointees that are that are so virtuous, they'll turn all this. All the surrounding will be saved. Well, I don't. I don't see that whatsoever. I have no faith in that.
1: Well, no, I don't either. I uh, what I suspect will happen is not very nice, to be honest with you.
0: hmm Uh,
1: because you see, this can't, this can't really go on. What they're doing is not sustainable. Uh, you know, if you declare war on reality, that's nice, but unfortunately, reality has a way of smacking you in the face. <laughs> uh, and it, you know you you could do it, but it will win right. it it's unfortunate i mean i have always been annoyed with reality for that very purpose myself but uh no i mean what what I suspect will happen is one of two things either they will keep pushing 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 this woke garbage, and the and this i i, I have a fairly Sadly, fairly confident feeling will happen, and there will be a blowback. It'll be a very violent blowback. Uh, it could be anything from Weimar-style endless street problems to a full full-out civil war. Uh, I think that if they, if we had, you know, insurrections, shall we say, in some of our uh, red states, and they tried to use the military to suppress it, the military would split. Um, and out of all that utter chaos would come a strongman. Now, that's the one idea. The other is that there won't be any blowback of that sort, and they'll just keep going the way they're going, and then the machinery will break down, and then we'll have chaos, and then you'll have a strongman.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> any way you, you turn it, though, I'm afraid that uh, – now, mind you, my my deepest prayer is that if I'm still around in 10 years, we're celebrating my 70th, uh, we can laugh at how stupid I was. I definitely hope that's the case. But, uh, as things stand now, I'm afraid I see the, the ultimate, not the ultimate result, because history doesn't stop unless it's the last days, but... The result of this particular chapter of history, if you will, uh, will be in, in our country uh, another uh, a homegrown Cromwell. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of uh, Huey Long meets uh, Van Horn Mosley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that the uh... <laughs>
0: oh, my boy. I I I think that the most pragmatic solution at this point would be secession or the peaceful division of this country. Now, unfortunately, the left would never allow it to be peaceful. No, that,
1: I mean, see, that's not going to happen because no. where the left are concentrated are the least productive parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with secession of any sort is that the people who want to secede often do so because they're afraid that their money is being spent for them on stupid stuff. Uh, we had a, uh, we had a, a, an attempt at secession in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. And, you know, I knew that wasn't going to go anywhere because according to the city charter for that to happen, the rest of the city would have to agree. Well, there's <laughs> no way in hell. No the, way! The, they're gonna let the, 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 they're gonna let the golden goose fly away. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I mean, who sh- who shoots Santa Claus? <laughs> <laughs> it's madness. So I mean, it, it passed. I think the, I think they got a plurality in the valley, but I mean, the rest of the city was an utter no go. Who's gonna pay the bills of the city of Los Angeles? Not the mm-hmm. center. I mean. Uh, a few years ago I was listening to the radio and they had this apparatchik in uh, Sacramento babbling as they do uh, and he made a statement that was so revealing and yet the interviewer just I don't know was asleep at the switch or something but what the fellow said was you know there really is a lot of money in California but so much of it is still in private hands and I thought yeah that's certainly true
0: so, so, Charles, you think that this, this, I don't know if you've heard about this Texit movement, for example. Yes, I have. This is, this is, um, nothing more than a, a, a brutum fulmin, right? It, it's not going to go anywhere.
1: Well, I don't think so. I mean, if it does go somewhere, it'll, it'll, it'll go violent. Uh, yeah. you know, and the thing is, the, the problem you have, and this is why I speak of a blowback, the, what the people in charge do not understand is that their foot soldiers are Tifa and BLM. But those people, I mean, they're great with jumping up and down and rioting and burning defensive shopkeepers and so on. But what will they ever do if they try that garbage in a well-armed American neighborhood?
0: That's the question. Mm-hmm.
1: And they'll, they'll, be, they'll be killed. And you know what saddens me? is that these these silly yahoos who are the product of decades of idiotic Marxist and critical theory edification? they don't know any better. And they'll die for nothing. It's it's heartbreaking. I mean, when I saw them during the summit, I thought to myself, you know, there's, there's a lot of dragon's teeth being sewed. Mm. And it's also needless, you know. Uh, I did a piece for Crisis magazine called "The Woke List" during I the summer. I was... Yeah, it was hard going through all that stuff. I got to tell you, all these idiots, and, they, and a lot <laughs> of these, a lot of these were institutions that I have a great deal of respect for, or had past pastets, but the current leadership just—they—they part of the vulgarity. They defecate are their own organizations and are their founders. Mm-hmm. You see, call me crazy, but if you are getting a salary from an organization, you really have two choices if you find you're not in agreement with either its founders or its or its its very nature. There are only two things you can do. Actually there's only one. You can resign. But morally speaking, if instead you start attacking the people that founded your organization and start talking about how it's got endemic evil in its bones, you know what? Shut up. Mm-hmm. You've got nothing to say that anyone needs to hear. You're, you're, you're getting your cake and you're eating it too. You're, you're literally sucking the blood out of something built by, uh, if not better men, certainly wiser men than yourself. And it, uh, I, I, I could say that about God knows how many organizations today. The Boy Scouts, you know? Oh,
0: sure. Mm-hmm.
1: The, you know, you know, don't, don't wreck somebody else's work, smart guy. Show us how bright you are and start your own. Cause you're so smart and stuff. And you know what? You're right. The founders of, uh, I don't know, the Audubon Club. Or we're evil men, you're right, so quit your job and start your own, uh, equal opportunity bird watching, Inc., or whatever you want. But see, that would require something that our chattering classes do not have. Integrity. They have no idea what it is. It's a lost thing. And frankly, I have to say, to some degree, I blame my generation and its proceeding. The uh, the boomers of the so-called silent generation. You know, when I think of that name, the silent generation, I can't help but say if only. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish they were. <laughs> I tell you what, I wish they were. But no, 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 the, the youngest members of the silent generation are still with us, pushing the older members of my generation to wreck everything they can on their way to the cemetery. But I should say our way to the cemetery, just so everyone understands. I you uh, see this in churches as well as state, you know.
0: Sure, yeah, of course. And it, Charles, it, you know, it's, it's, the left has been so brilliant about, if not corrupting these, these institutions like you speak of, as creating their own and arming them and filling them with these young people that are so ideologically doughy that they're incredibly easy to indoctrinate, and it's combined with the perceived invincibility of youth, and then setting them loose en masse, and then also, very clever, I have to say, in giving them these names that make them almost above reproach, right? Black Lives Matter and anti
1: fascist
0: Well, who's going to attack that?
1: Well, only, only someone who's seen them in action.
0: Right. And even then there's hesitation, right? Because, because the worst thing on earth, Charles, right now is, is being called a nasty name. Well, we don't want to be called nasty names.
1: The pro, the problem is that's now. But they're just going to continue. I mean, look, uh, President Biden, uh, signed an executive order. And I'll take you one example out of that huge flock of garbage he, uh, generated. I'll tell you what, I, I think of him and Leo O'Donovan together. Church and state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, he ordered all universities that get any kind of federal money, which is almost all of them, uh, to stop, quote, unquote, discriminating against uh, self-identified chicks going into women's sports.
0: I heard this. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: well, it's more than that. It's the end of women's athletics. I mean, what it, what it means is you're going to have men's athletics and trannies, and that's going to be it. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, how's that, how's that supposed to help women again? Uh, but it comes out of the, you know, my sort of Waterloo with this kind of nonsense was in uh, Mr. Obama's last year. When he signed an executive order, cutting off federal funding uh, to translate that into English, free lunches for children in poor neighborhoods, like the one I went to, Virgin Mm -hmm. Junior High, uh, in beautiful uh, L.A. Uh, They cut off free lunches to those kids if their schools would not allow boys who decided they were chicks to uh, use the girls' rooms and the girls' locker rooms. That's right. I Mm -hmm. I thought to myself... What, 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 what kind of worthless scumbag, if you'll pardon the expression, would, would do something that insane? Well, the answer is the then President of the United States. Well, that's the kind of drivel that's going to be pushed on our throats again. Now, that will, that will hit a tipping point at some, somewhere along the line. And it's needlessly stupid. That's the thing that, that drives me crazy about it. They're going to rile people up for nothing. There's no need to do this. But, again, their ideology is more important to them than the realities of governance.
0: That's right. That's, that's so, a sad truth. Um, it
1: is. It is. I mean, a wise ruler tries not to antagonize the majority of his subjects. You, you think that's, that's, you know, kind of easy to figure out?
0: They don't see any repercussions for it, though. I think that's, that's the problem. Um, like I say, there's a lot of bluster on Twitter, but that's, that's about all it amounts to. Um, that, that,
1: that is, that's true at the moment. And as yeah. I say, either one of two things will happen. Either there yeah. will be a very, very fierce blowback, which will be all the worse for being delayed, or there won't be any blowback at all, and the whole system will simply crumble in its own way.
0: But at some point, the, the wheels will just fall off. Um yeah. Charles, you know uh, I'd like to switch gears here a little bit before we round the home stretch um because I feel like we've, we've talked about all the problems that we're currently inhabiting or that are currently inhabiting our our nation and the West in general, but I'd like to talk a little bit about what we've missed out on um and what we maybe could have had by speaking a little bit about blessed Charles of Austria, sure um. And what an example of a, a monarch and a leader he was! Can can you give us an overview of his life and and uh, how he came to be such a um, focal point for, for you and for your and for your so much so that you wrote this um, very comprehensive book of his life?
1: Well, gosh, uh, how do I give a short version? Well, he was uh, the first thing to remember about him is that when he was born. Uh, although he was a member of the imperial family and in line for the throne, uh, his actually inheriting it was considered very remote. And there was a reason for that. The reason was that at the time the Emperor Franz Josef had a son who was very much alive, the Crown Prince Rudolf, who had had a daughter or two and, uh, could very well have a son. Uh, the next heir was the Emperor's brother who was uh, uh Carl's grandfather. But he had two sons. Franz Ferdinand was the older, Otto was the younger. And Franz Ferdinand, although he wasn't married at the time, could get married at any time. He was certainly, you know, in the market. Uh, and as it happened, he would have several kids. But, well, we'll see what happened. And then uh, there was his father, Otto. So he was a, he was an archduke, he was a member of the imperial family, he was in line for the throne, but he was more of a spare than the heir, if you see what I mean. <laughs> and yeah. Uh they they it was very very unlikely. Now his parents were kind of an interesting uh, couple themselves. Uh his mother was a Saxon princess, very very devout. His father uh <laughs> Well, his father was very handsome, very charming, very much a ladies' man. And initially, when he married his wife, he tried to settle down. It was an arranged marriage. It was not a love match. Uh, but after a couple of children, he went back to his old ways and contracted syphilis, which eventually killed him. Ooh. Now, uh, Carl was born into this. Uh, when he was five years old, his parents uh, moved to Udenburg, which is now called Chopron. It's in Hungary today. It was in Hungary then. But anyway, it's now surrounded by Austria. <clears throat> but they were in Chopron, and uh, his parents got a priest to teach him the catechism. The priest, in turn, had an interesting friend named Mother Vincencia who was an Ursuline nun and was the, uh, the head of the Ursuline school in the, in the town. But she was also something else. Unbeknownst to most, she was a stigmatic, which she concealed. And uh, she also had the gift of prophecy. Wow. So this, uh, this priest told Mother Vincentia about this, uh, this boy, this little archduke he was teaching, And she got kind of a funny look and said, that boy will one day be the Emperor of Austria. He will be a great gift to the country, but because of it, the devil and hell will be dead set against him. So you've got to get people to start praying for him now. And they did. And they formed an organization called the Gebetsliga, the prayer league. The funny thing about that organization is that uh, over the years, it prayed for him, redoubled its prayers when he became the emperor. When he died, it uh, began to pray for his intercession, because even when he died, people suspected he was a saint. And it was the Gebetsliga which saw through his, uh, his cause to the beatification, and it's still around today. I'm a member of it.
0: This is the... Um... The, the same league, the, the Emperor Carl League of Pra oh, okay, excellent. That's
1: the one, okay. the Emperor Carl League of Prer. That wow. that's the amazing but unlike most of these sorts of organizations that only start after the person dies and people begin to notice, you know, the individual. They like him and or her and you know, they, they may have had sort of small helps from him or whatever. That's how that gets started. But in this case, it began when he was only five years old. Wow. So he uh, he went to uh, he went to high school in Vienna, a very nice place, the uh, the Schottenkloster, Benedictine uh, school, and then he went to the army. Well, in the meantime, his uh, parents' marriage disintegrated, uh, and after Otto uh, got syphilis, they lived separately. But he continued to visit both of them. He loved them both very much and stayed on very good terms with them. And one of the things I realized. It, it, writing about him, was that, you know, he's a great example and patron for fathers and uh, uh, soldiers and husbands and rulers and so forth, but also for kids from broken and, uh, shall we say, difficult homes, because he did precisely the best you could do with that kind of a setup. He stayed on very good terms with both of his parents. He loved them both very much. From his father... He got the easy, joking manner of the child and all that, but not the promiscuity. And from his mother, he got the deep, deep piety, but none of the dourness. So he got the best of both from them, which, you know, if if you're a kid from a, like that kind of a family, a broken broken home, and you could do that, that's pretty neat.
0: And it's, it's pretty easy to become bitter, Otherwise, right? Without Very,
1: time. very easy. And, and also, it's the best way to honor your parents, really, if you think about it, is to take the best from both of them. Because, however bad they were, either as spouses or as parents, there's no better tribute to anyone than taking the best from him and putting it in your own life. So, anyway, uh, he uh, fell in love with a. Childhood playmate of his and a former, uh, uh, well, uh, also a relative actually. Uh, and her name was Zita of Bourbon Parma. Her father was the last Duke of uh, Parma who'd been uh, pushed out by the Italians in 1859. Her mother was a Portuguese Princess of Braganza. So she was, uh, eminently suitable, shall we say, from the, uh, uh imperial side, but it was a love match, and they were both extremely devout. Now, in the meantime, his uncle, Franz Ferdinand, uh, his grandfather died. Franz Ferdinand becomes the heir, but Franz Ferdinand had also married for love, but Morganatically, So his children could not inherit, which meant that Karl was now the heir to the throne. Rudolf and, uh, uh, his mistress, Maria Vetsera, had died, uh, in 1889, I think, uh, at Myerling. Very famous case, sort of the Kennedy assassination of the, uh, 20th century, of the 19th century. Uh, to this day, you know, people speculate whether it was murder or suicide. But the official story was suicide, but Empress always said otherwise, and there's a tradition at the Monastery of Heiligenkreuz that, uh, received the bodies when they were first brought in, that, uh, Archduke fingers were all broken, which we kind of prevent him from killing himself. Uh, but we'll never know that unless the, the family ever allows the, uh, you know, an examination, which is very unlikely. I can't imagine right. they doing that. I would, you know, I, I, I mean, they, they certainly would not want to, all you would hear for the next 10 years, whichever it turned out to be, was what happened in Myrland. Anyway, so moving along, he's the heir to the throne, uh, and now he's got a, an interesting situation going on, because uh, Austria-Hungary is, since 1867, two countries united in their ruler, the Empire of Austria and the Kingdom of Hungary. Now, in Austria... The non-German nationalities have a lot of, uh, of, uh, autonomy. But in Hungary, you had several liberal governments, uh, which, now the Hungarian Conservative Catholic Party was quite different. But the Hungarian liberals were very nationalist-minded and wanted to assimilate their minorities, the Croats and Slovaks and Romanians and so forth which wasn't flying very well with the nationalities, as you can imagine. But, it had been very difficult for the emperor to come to this arrangement with Hungary in the first place, and he just wanted to maintain the status quo. His nephew, Franz Ferdinand, with whom he was still annoyed because of the morganatic marriage, which he hadn't approved of, uh, Franz Ferdinand wanted to federalize the empire. So basically, Every nationality would be master in its own house, under the House of Habsburg, and in union with all the others. Karl, when he came along, uh, thanks, I believe, in no small part to his uh, experiences with his parents, he, instead of forming uh, either a lying, in one sense, with either uh, his his uncle or his great-uncle, or setting up a third center of plotting and intrigue, He stayed on good terms with both of them. He understood his his uh, great uncle's position. He agreed with his uncle's position. But he stayed on very good terms with the both of them. And I I was wondering how he managed to do that, which is kind of a question amongst historians. And it hit me. He dealt with his parents. And sometimes the, the obvious answer is the easiest. He loved them. It really is that simple. He loved his great-uncle, Franz Josef, the emperor, and he loved his uncle, Franz Ferdinand, the head of the throne. And the interesting thing is that Franz Ferdinand, although his children could never inherit, never resented his nephew for that.
0: Remarkable character that you um, certainly don't see from our leaders now.
1: No, no. I mean, it's... And see that was the thing too. Uh, I learned a lot about Franz Ferdinand uh, in doing this book, and you know, his loss was a huge loss for the empire and for Europe, and not just because it started World War One. Um, he would he would have been an incredible emperor, I believe. Uh, he had his own ideas, not just when it came to uh, internal policy, but also foreign policy. He felt that the Austrians were unwise being too closely allied with uh, Germany, and was very friendly with uh, various folk in Russia and Britain. And one can only wonder if a a triple alliance between Britain, Austria, and Russia might not have kept Germany and France quiet.
0: Right, this was certainly prescient on his part. Um, We can only imagine what would have taken place had he been the emperor.
1: Yeah, you can only imagine, you know, a lot of what-ifs. But in the meantime, uh, Carl married Zena, and, uh, in 19, well, they got engaged in 1910. They got married in 1911, 1911, anyway, 19, I forget, frankly. I should have this at the top of my head, I don't. Their first son was born in 1912, so it was 1910 and 1911 they were married. But, uh, <clears throat> I think 1911, because, uh, yes, it was 1911. Uh, because before that, he, uh, he had to go to, uh, England for the coronation of George V. But at any rate, the, uh, uh, interesting thing was that his wife, when he went to the coronation, his wife went down to Rome to see St. Pius X to get his blessing on the forthcoming marriage. And he said, oh yes, your, your husband, uh, is the heir to the throne. She said, well, no, he's the heir to the heir, so to speak. And Pius X just sort of, and he said, he'll be Empress, and he sort of shook his head and said, well, maybe maybe there'll be an application or something. Hmm. But it was a very peculiar moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any rate, they got married on uh, October the 21st, and uh, 1911. Uh, it's one of the few times that you'll see photographs of Franz Josef smiling because <laughs> this, this was a love match of a, of a suitably ranked couple who would provide heirs, heirs to him and ensure the throne. So he was very happy about it. Uh, but <clears throat> the, uh, in the meantime, the situation began to get darker and darker. And a few, uh, a few weeks before his fateful trip to Sarajevo, Franz Ferdinand had, uh, uh, Zita and Carl over for dinner. One thing you've got to bear in mind about, uh, uh, about the other thing about Franz Ferdinand is that his example of married life was what Carl looked to. Because the emperor's marriage had been very unhappy. Uh, his parents were unhappy. But even though their wedding was Morgan uh Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were very, very happy with each other. Mm-hmm. And they produced a lot of children and were just as domestic as you can imagine. So even before he got married, Carl enjoyed spending time with them as a result. Oh, and the other thing I should have mentioned is that after they were married, uh... He said to uh, Zita, "Now we must help each other get to heaven." That Beautiful. was that was what he saw marriage, marriage as being, you know. So at any rate, they're having dinner, and uh, Franz Ferdinand's wife had to leave the room. Well, when she did, Franz Ferdinand said, "Look, I didn't want to say anything while your aunt was with us, but I know they're going to get me, so I have some papers for you that you must have." They're in this draw, and he pointed them where, where to go. When he ended up becoming emperor, however, the papers were gone. So he never found out what they were. Anyhow, long and short of it is that with Sarajevo, he became the heir to the throne, and he served on the front line during that time. He became his uh, his great uncle's sort of roving eyes. So he was on the Italian front, he was in Galicia against the Russians, Transylvania against the Romanians. He was all over the place, on the Serbian front. And he was very close to combat, time and again, showed his bravery. On one occasion, during a flash flood in the Alps, he rescued a soldier who'd been, uh, he jumped in and, and, and swam after and grabbed him with a bad leg, He'd been swept away by the torrent. So it's the kind of man he was uh as a soldier and then as an emperor. He was willing to sacrifice himself for his people. And this is where we're getting to the heart of the matter. This is the kind of leadership we're not used to. Leadership uh, a leadership that will sacrifice itself for its subjects. We can't imagine that really. I mean we're used to our presidents ordering us to die. We're used to that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that they would fight alongside us, or even give up their lives for us? Really? That's odd. Yeah, it is odd. So, from the beginning, when he became emperor, his uh, his great-uncle died in 1916. He became the emperor, and he immediately began trying to get Austria out of the war. And his failure was due to his allies, his enemies, and uh, some of his own officials. And that's something that keeps on throughout the story of of his time as emperor, was betrayal, right and left and center. And the worst of it is, he was a saint. And at the end of the day, it was our own President Wilson who doomed him. You know, I I I came to that realization a long time ago. And I was reminded of the English soldier when they burned Joan of Arc, who suddenly said, God help us, we have burned the saint. Well, the different uh, powers of the Entente and the uh, the revolutionary leaders they set up to rule after Carl, they all of them should have said, God help us, we have dethroned the same. But his story wasn't over because he went to exile in Switzerland in 1918, uh, 1921. He twice attempted to make a comeback in Hungary. and was frustrated by the treason of the so-called Regent Admiral Horphy, who uh, uh, on the day that he was forced to relinquish government in Austria, had come to him. Uh, swearing that he would do anything and everything he could to put him back on his throne. <laughs> well, then when he was on the throne himself, he felt a bit differently, as people often do. So his second attempt failed, and the Allies insisted he leave Europe, and he was dumped on the island of Madeira without any money. And he had nothing, no no, no money at all. They wouldn't let any of his supporters send him anything. So. Uh, he ended up living in a, uh, a summer house led to him by a local banker. But because it was up in the hill country and it was cold and wet, he contracted pneumonia and he died. So, that was the story of uh, Kaiser Karl. Incredible.
0: I think that there's threads that run through all of our discussion It's that that keep cementing these ideas in my head. Is that the The spirit of rebellion is the spirit of antichrist, and that monarchy seems to be the only system of governance that really fully aligns with the structure of heaven um and so it's no surprise to me that it, that it is constantly rebelled against by our very human natures
1: That's true, and there's another thing too to consider um uh, which now, I read this back in college, but it really hit me very, very hard. There's a fellow called Müller von who who is a, uh, a German. But he wrote, speaking of what had happened in World War I, that the Germans ceased to have kings when they ceased to be a kingly people. And I, you know, on one level, I'm, of course, very much a supporter of monarchy and restoration and all that. On another level, we do very, I I do believe we get the leadership we deserve. Certainly. And that, that's a horrible thing to say. (laughs) It sure is. Yeah. Uh, if ever, if ever the peoples of Central Europe get the Habsburgs back, it will be because they've become better than than their preceding few generations were, uh, when he was on his deathbed, Carl said, I am suffering that my peoples might come back together. And looking at things as they are now, Central Europe is somewhat saner than Western Europe or America. Uh, the cultus of Kaiser Carl is growing in this part of the, part of the world. It wasn't lost on me that while our, our morons were having their summer of flame in, uh, <laughs> in uh, America, in Prague, the old Marian Zoyla, the Marian Column, which had been pulled down in 1918 to show triumph over the Catholic altar and the Habsburg throne, it was re erected. All the while the statues of Father Sarah and Columbus were coming down. It went up. Uh, the double eagle went back on the fountain in the middle of the castle in Prague, and they are rebuilding the statue of the famous field marshal Radetzky that was pulled out in 1918, another Habsburg loyalist. And I look at that. I look at what's happening in our country, and part of me wonders if some of it isn't a punishment for Woodrow Wilson's actions here 102 years ago. I don't know. But it's interesting that the one thing should be happening at the same time as the other. The statue is going up in a period of tranquility here, and they're being pulled down as America gets crazier and crazier.
0: It's it's, it's very interesting. It says to me that as you can never fully stamp out hope, so while on the one side of the globe – the boot of totalitarianism is stamping down. It's pushing on that hope, it's causing it to only spring up on the other side of the globe, where it may take root, God willing.
1: Well in mind, and also, you know, another thing that's interesting to me is the growth of popularity of Kaysakaro in America. There are sixteen shrines in his honor scattered around our country.
0: 16. Is that right? Sixteen yes.
1: Yes, wow. indeed. They just had another one open in Georgia.
0: Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. That's very encouraging.
1: Well, it yeah. is. And if you go to the website of the Kazakal uh, Prayer League, the EmperorCharles.org, EmperorCharles.org, it does think. You'll see, amongst other things, li- a listing of all the shrines around the world, but you'll see the ones in America. And, of course, one of the questions I dealt with in my book is, why is he popular amongst those Americans who know him? It's also interesting, by the way, that one of his two miracles was the cure of an American woman, a non-Catholic at the time, in Florida. So the question, then, is what is it about Kaiser Karl that is so attractive to those Americans who get to know him? And I think the answer is, apart from his being a saint and a a good patron for fathers and husbands and uh, broken homes and soldiers and rulers, etc., <clears throat> he represents not just the kind of sacrificial leadership that we, as all humans, must really crave, but aren't allowed to have. He's also the national father figure we so sort of desperately want. Because, see, that's that's the problem with strongmen, whether they be uh, well-intentioned like Franco or uh, Cromwell instead, Uh, they're not the real thing. They can try, but a stepdad is never a father. And you see, a real monarch, crowned of God and all the rest of it, if he lives up to his uh, to his vows and all that the way the way we're supposed to live up to our baptismal promises. <laughs> if he does that, he is the father of his people, the father of his country. And the idea of dying for them makes perfect sense. Uh, and that doesn't mean you always agree with him any more than you agree with your own father, you know, in day to day things. But it does mean you respect him because you know that you and he are tied together. By bonds far thicker than the world could break.
0: Well, sir, I, I think that's an excellent summation of everything you've espoused here today. Um, and an excellent way to maybe bring to an end our, our conversation. Um, I would exhort all of my listeners to read Mr. Colomb's wonderful book on, on Blessed Emperor Charles, to uh, make use of intercession to Blessed Emperor Charles, that we may have a just ruler in our own country at some point in the not-too-distant future, in God's good time. And I want to thank Sir Charles Cologne once again for appearing on the show. And, and Charles, we'll have to do this again because I'm told by our mutual friend, Brother Andre Marie, that, that we share an affinity for um, a confederacy of dunces and a canticle
1: for Leibowitz. Oh, I'll say. I'll say. the. Uh... So, Two two brilliant books, <laughs> right?
0: So I, I imagine that we could do a whole show just discussing both of those at some point in the future. We, I, I would I would love to do so if you'd be up for it.
1: Oh, I, very very much so. And, and you know the, the sad thing about those two books is that I mean they're they're both very funny in their way. Obviously, Confederacy Boy than a catacole, but catechol has a lot of humor in it actually. Sure. Uh, yeah. but. Uh, they're probably two of the most Catholic books produced in the United States in the last half of the 20th century, but both of their authors killed themselves.
0: Isn't that interesting? I've always thought about that too. I don't. Know, I don't know what I might point to that it that it actually means, but I'm
1: sure there's I some kind of. I, I don't know either. I don't. I really don't know either.
0: But it's very interesting, right? It's. 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 It certainly means something.
1: It does. I mean, there was such. They were both such. Clear-eyed observers of human nature. Maybe the message is we shouldn't look. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One could take it that way. right?
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: What is what is it that Nietzsche said? The be careful that you stare not too long into the abyss because the abyss also gazes into you. Right.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That, maybe that's what the, I don't know. very said.
0: Well, we'll have to plan for that in the future, Sir Charles, and um, I, I would enjoy that immensely as I do all our conversations. And I thank you once again for being my guest today.
1: Most welcome. it was a great pleasure, and I look forward to doing it again.
0: Okay, you have been listening to the Sequa Virtus podcast. My guest has been Sir Charles Cologne. I will place links to where you can purchase his book as well as to the Emperor Charles League of Prayer in the description of this episode. Thank you all for listening. Pray your rosary. God bless you. Bye-bye.